Hello, everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please like, subscribe, follow wherever you're listening to this. Please follow us on there. We really appreciate it. Give us a rating, give us a review, whatever you can do. We appreciate it. So, uh, all that said, today I am both excited and ashamed to say that we are celebrating Stanley Kubrick's birthday. Now, why am I ashamed? Well, let me start here. I'm excited because I even just got a tattoo added to my Kubrick collage, uh, old private pile. I'll put a picture of it uh, on the uh, on the uh, promo for this on on social media, but. Um, anyways, I you know I have this uh, Kubrick tattoo. Kubrick's my favorite guy. I love all of his movies. I, you know I show them to. I'm actually in the middle of a marathon with a friend of mine. I mean I love Kubrick, and so I thought, dude, Kubrick's birthday is on a Tuesday. This is gonna be fucking perfect. I am going to finally do this. Like we're gonna do a couple of Kubrick movies, but I've also just been so busy lately. So last Monday I record the episode with Sam. Okay, because Sam Watermeyer, the, Sam the Movie Man Watermeyer from the Indiana Film Journalist Association, he also writes for Midwest Film Journal, uh, old friend, he um, he came on the show, and I asked him, hey, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, uh, either 2001 or The Shining, and then he chose The Shining, so I chose 2001, <laughs> and so um, partially because I'd already watched it in preparation for this, thinking he would choose 2001, uh, but in the end... Uh, it worked out really well, and we are going. You're going to hear our conversation today. Uh, but last week we recorded it on Monday, um, and just because of so, I have so much going on, I wasn't able to finish it Monday night, and then uh, pretty much the rest of the week I wasn't really even home. So uh, yeah, it's tricky, and we've had someone staying with us. So like, usually I would do it whenever like my wife went to sleep or when we were like home and settled. Uh, but then like someone's staying in the room that I record. There's a lot going on right now. And so I'm ashamed because we're celebrating Kubrick's birthday one week late. And it was on an exact day when a when an episode could drop. I'm getting so frustrated about all this. But it was a blast watching these. Sam and I are going to talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Shining in that order. And uh, I got to say, watching 2001 again, because it had been several years since I'd seen it. And every time I watch that movie, I always think I'm never going to like this as much as I liked it before. I don't know why. I guess I just, I don't know, I just assume that. It is fucking incredible. Like, every time I watch it, I'm just like, this is a signature film, if not the signature film, not only of Kubrick's, what, filmography, uh, but also just of the 60s. I mean, this movie is incredible. So, uh, yeah, spoiler, I love this movie. Um, and, uh, and then we talk about The Shining, which I have been very outspoken about that being my favorite horror film of all time. So you're going to hear me gush. And you're actually just going to hear me ramble a lot, to be honest. Uh, Sam and I just kind of ramble about these movies uh, off and on, but we had a great time. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, please let us know what your favorites are at our social media, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear your favorite Kubrick film. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching more, and I might actually 
actually save it until his birthday next year, when hopefully I will do it at the episode closest to his birthday and not uh, a week late. Uh, but anyways, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoy it. Please let us know what you think. But until then, here's Sam and I talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey. All right, everybody, I'm here with my old friend, Sam Watermeyer. Say hello, Sam. Hi, everybody. Thanks for hey. having me, Austin. Of course, of course. And uh, I've seen you post about uh, at least one of these movies, if not uh, uh, both of them. And so I thought about you when I was going to do the Stanley Kubrick birthday. Uh, it is today, uh, July 26th. Of course, he died in 1999, unfortunately. So it's been a long time. But this is a posthumous birthday celebration for Stanley Kubrick. We're going to talk about two movies today, which I've already mentioned. We're going to talk about uh, The Shining. But before we get there, we're going to do 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, based on a book by Arthur C. Clarke. The cast, Keir Dulia, Gary Lockwood, and Douglas Rain, who did the voice of HAL 9000. I did not know this. I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, the release date was April 3rd, 1968, but that was only a limited release. It was released wide June 24th, 1970, two years what? after its release is what I found. We'll see uh, how that works, but I never knew that. That's up to IMDb, okay? So we can we can take it up with them later, um, but if that's true, I didn't know that. It's pretty wild. Neither I don't know where I. the limited was. What's that? Yeah, neither did I. I'll... Um... Yeah, I could have sworn that. I mean, when was like Ebert's review published? Ooh, now see, that's a good one. But in in defense, though, not only critics but also uh, Chicago probably got this. Right. Um, but I'm going to look up uh, Ebert's 2001: A Space Odyssey review before we continue, folks. Let's get down to brass tacks here. Um, actually, hold on, I found one from 1997, which just can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been um, his great movies essay. It was, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, nineteen uh, April twelfth, nineteen sixty eight. Which uh, I said uh, April third, so it would have been right after it had come out limited. I don't know what's going on, but the point is nineteen sixty eight. We got to keep that in mind because we're going to talk about some crazy shit. And yeah. I want everyone to remember this is like like fifty four years old or whatever. So, anyways. Uh, this was uh, had a budget of uh, half million dollars less than Star Wars, which came out nine years after this. Ten and a half million dollars. It made one hundred forty six million dollars in the box office, streaming on HBO Max. If anyone's interested, and it's about uh, it's about a lot of things. Humanity finds a mysterious object buried beneath the lunar surface and sets off to find its origins with the help of HAL nine thousand, the world's most advanced supercomputer. It's about humanity. The beginning of time, the wonders of the universe, rebirth, renewal, deconstruction, and so much more. There's a reason this is a perfect movie. And yes, I dare say a perfect movie. Uh, but at least to so many people, it's perfect. And uh, the friend I watched it with had never seen it before. And uh, he could not believe that this was made in 1968. Why? Because it's ahead of its time in so many ways. That's why. And what, you know, what? Uh, uh, with a comparable budget to Star Wars, again, I understand there's nearly a decade difference, but with a, a budget comparable to Star Wars, you know, uh, this is a masterpiece that just, I think, looks even better. 
Um, no shade to Star Wars. I love the original trilogy, by the way. But 2001 is a mindfuck of a space movie, an epic by all standards, even with an intermission, which I always forget about. And uh, it's just timeless. After 54 years, it still holds up as a masterpiece of its decade, century, and the medium altogether. So, Sam, you can tell, if you can't tell, I, I love this movie. Um, it's a perfect five-star experience for me, but how does this film connect with you, or does it? Um, well, unclench your intestines. It definitely <laughs> connects with me. Um, I'm a fan as well. Um, I think this is actually my favorite, my favorite Kubrick movie. Um, I saw it as a kid, you know, obviously didn't really understand it um, at that time. But I think that it kind of has a, a universal quality that appeals to all, all ages. I mean, I think as a kid, you can appreciate it just as a uh, visual and oral experience. Um, I remember the the space through or the trip through space and time at the end uh, with all of its, um, you know, technological wizardry. Uh, blew me away when I was a kid. Um, Dude, it blows me away in 2022. It's still awesome. Right. Yeah, and I actually saw this at the Indiana State Museum IMAX when it was re-released for its 50th anniversary. And uh, seeing that on a genuine IMAX screen, um, you know, that climactic sequence First of all, I thought it was going to like really freak me out. I've always found that <laughs> sequence kind of terrifying. And even as it was starting with like the, you know, lights whizzing by, um, I started freaking out a little bit and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have a panic attack. Um, but then I was like, just let it wash over you, man. <laughs> just, just, just take, <laughs> I was like, just take that ride. <laughs> and I was just, uh, I was just hypnotized. Um, my fiance, uh, at the time it was her first time seeing it. Um, so she was pretty blown away as well. Um, yeah, I think, you know, even after 50 some years, I mean, this is better than this looks better than, um, most of the, computer generated spectacles of today i mean it really puts any marvel movie to shame uh i, I look at some um uh you know effects driven movies now and i think they look like pure garbage Agreed. um no secret from the for this podcast that i feel that way but yeah. yeah i mean some some of these movies now just uh you know feel like um uh, like bad video games that you would play on your computer in the 80s and you know this movie is so realistic that conspiracy theorists have said that it's proof that you know stanley kubrick helped uh uh create the moon landing hoax stage it yeah uh stage which funny enough real quick danny from the shining which we'll get to is wearing an apollo 11 shirt at one time and that's another conspiracy theory that is proof <laughs> <laughs> right i actually picked that up 
uh last night when i uh, rewatched the shining i was like oh there's the proof yeah um i don't believe in the moon landing hoax i think saying I it's either. a hoax is actually like really disrespectful and horrible um but uh anyway um I, th- I think that was a very long-winded answer to your question which was basically just do i like this movie <laughs> um, <laughs> no it's and- fine i mean i, I mean i want to start with uh, one thing because you brought up the um the great uh you know adventure through space and time right that journey through space and time and i i can't imagine seeing it in imax i'm sure it was restored i'm sure it was some incredible print or something uh, but you know, one thing that st- one thing that stood out to me in particular was the music, because Kubrick in most of his movies, if not all, um, has these incredibly timeless scores, right? Um, they're never just like songs from the era. It's always like Beethoven, as as is in A Clockwork Orange, or in this case, you know, you have all of this old classical stuff. But he also has this really, really disturbing, like dissonant. Uh, you know, strings with like weird voices doing like, <laughs> you know, but which sounds comical when I do it, but it's like when you have like 15 of them doing different things, it's just dissonant and mm. weird. And we were watching it and it was so unsettling. Um, but uh, how does the music affect this movie for you? Because watching it, it was like, holy shit, this mo- movie would not be what it is without this score. Do you agree with that? Oh, totally. Um, I think the score definitely makes it even makes that sequence even creepier and more unsettling. And I think it actually works in the same way that the Shining score works um, in serving as this kind of otherworldly presence. Um, You know, you hear those voices and they kind of sound like you know, crying angels or something like that, like something um, otherworldly or uh, in the heavens. Um, And, you know, that definitely works in the supernatural realm of The Shining, but it it works, you know, in outer space as well, because that's, um, uh, you know, kind of a similarly unsettling world. yeah, it's uh, well, in 2001, I think those angelic voices serve as almost kind of like a Greek chorus um, for the characters. Uh, you know, they're alone in space and maybe those are like the spirits surrounding them. Um, uh, kind of tying them back to some kind of uh earthly presence um you know maybe the the angelic voices crying or kind of represent the astronauts inner turmoil um well you know i know i noticed that they do that uh that kind of the weird uh, angels crying as you say uh that that's part of the score happens um now uh, again i don't remember the times it happens outside of this with the exception of the journey through time and space um but it's when the uh monolith is on the screen or mm. something whenever it's directly tied. So they actually play that during the uh, apes at the beginning, right? As mm. he's learning, uh, I'm pretty sure it's the it's the uh, scene where he learns that if he hits something with this bone, he can like you know 
win fights instead of just yelling about it. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) And like get our water hole back. You know what I mean? Um, And so I always thought of that like weird part of the score as being like somehow directly tied to the monolith, you know, like something which doesn't necessarily uh, uh, what's the word like disqualify your idea. But it's more of um, like, what is the like? And I'm putting you on the spot. okay? Mm -hmm. but like, what does the monolith represent to you? Or how do you look at it? Maybe is a better question. Huh. Um, uh, I mean, I think the basic answer is, you know, I think it represents the unknown, um, uh, the desire to explore something otherworldly. Um, you know, now I've seen memes comparing the monolith to like the release of the new iPhone. Um, there's a, a great meme of, you know, these uh, tech nerds kind of gathering around an iPhone, just like the apes are gathering around the monolith. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it kind of like represents the constant quest for something new. Um, you know, what, what's interesting about the technology explored in the movie is that you know, it makes the suggestion that like a bone that an ape, that a, an ape finds isn't all that different from this futuristic technology, right? I mean, it's like this bone can be used as this primitive tool for violence, but, you know, so can a robot like Hal, even though it's seemingly much more elegant and advanced. Yeah. Um there is a full circle nature to that. Yeah. Because, you know, you have you have the, the ape who kills another ape to get the water hole back, right? Um, and uses that bone, which is a technology of sorts, right? He's using this thing. And then you get to HAL 9000, which is uh, at one point legit Gary Lockwood's character. I'm forgetting his name, Frank or something. Uh, legit just like launches him out of... <laughs> Of his pod or whatever, you know, what I mean? <laughs> like, like just into space, you know, um, and basically kills him. I, I always thought of the monolith as um, something that was related to uh, our our obsession with, uh, as you said, like the like the unknown or like wanting uh, uh, our desire for knowledge. Uh, every time someone touches it, we either learn something. Um, but those things sometimes are things that we don't necessarily want to know once we find them out mm. you know what i'm saying like they take the ai for example if if uh, everything from the apes learning about bones leading all the way up to the uh how 9000 present time right we've advanced in our knowledge of these things things have evolved and adapted and and uh, grown to be more like hal uh, how being much, much more than a bone, right? <laughs> like he's, he is, uh, like an AI, uh, robot basically. And, um, I, I always thought of it as like, you know, once they, like they learn all of these things, we're able to create something like how, and then what happens? Well, it begins to destroy us. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have, um, what's his name? Dave. I'm already forgetting. And I have like the IMDB pulled up. I might as well just look. Uh, yeah. Dave. I was right. Frank and Dave. There you go. Uh, but Dave, you know, whenever he goes through that journey of time and space, um, I love that. It's like beautiful and freaky to- like the music's perfect because it is like this weird blend of the two. 
But every time it cuts back to still frames of Dave, they're like horrifying. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? Like they're horrifying. And so it's just um, just so interesting. And I just want listeners to understand, like we're talking about a movie that's 54 years old. And I don't think either one of us, correct me if you think I'm wrong, Sam, I don't think either one of us could confidently say, I know what the fuck this movie's about. Like right. that's part of its <laughs> beauty, right? Is yeah. it has like this quality to it that is timeless because you can get something new out of it every time. And um, I mean, tell me about like, uh, I'm particularly curious about your IMAX experience, but you can talk about any experience. I mean, the visuals on this thing on the, in this movie, what are some that really stand out to you? Like when you close your eyes and think about 2001, what are the images that pop into your head? Not counting the journey into time and space. We already talked about that, but I mean, like, are there others? Yeah, definitely. I think um, the astronauts approaching the monolith stands out to me. Um, and actually, as you were talking about it, I just realized that the monolith, because it's this kind of black void, is sort of like an abyss. And, yeah. and it, it, you know, it reminds me of that famous, you know, I think it's a Nietzsche quote and something like, uh, you know, if you if you stare into the abyss, the abyss will stare back into you. Um, and I think that's, you know, like you said, people learn from the monolith things that they didn't necessarily want to learn about the kind of darkness of human nature. And I mm -hmm. think that's what that abyss quote is uh, alluding to as well. Um uh, you know, but like in 2001, as these characters kind of stare into the darkness of space and human nature, you know, they learn a lot about the kind of timelessness of violence and, you know, stuff like that. But um, yeah. I, I would say uh, the, the astronauts approaching the monolith, um, I think the cut from the bone to the spaceship, um, yeah, that's kind of an obvious one that a lot of people reference, but um, I think it's still a pretty striking image, yeah. um, especially because that spaceship, um, you know, looks so much better than a lot of computer generated stuff now. Um, yeah. uh, oh, well, when I was a kid, you were talking about the freeze frames on Dave. Um, the extreme close-ups of his eyeball always really freaked me out. Um, and in fact, when I was a kid, like eyeball shots really got to me for some reason. <laughs> yeah. It like really got under my skin. Um, and I was worried that uh, seeing that in IMAX would like freak me out. Um Let's see. I mean, obviously, you know, the the red dot that you see representing yeah. Hal, which so, also I noticed um, real quick. Sorry, uh, no, is okay. it is uh, it's, Hal is constantly surrounded by a rectangular uh, black rectangle, right. which always makes me think of, of course, the monolith and this idea of like ultimate oh. knowledge and these weird things. There's a dude. We can get things out of interesting it. things every time. But continue, please. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't really considered that, but um, you know, the the red dot of Hal. Uh, I think the uh, Frank character just kind of flailing around in space. 
um, while there's no sound on, on the soundtrack is so disturbing. No, it's uh, just breathing. It's oh, just, yeah, it's just, breathing. just, but that's just as bad, right? Like, right. <laughs> oh my God. But Dave is just, it's just perpetual breathing for like five minutes. It feels like, cause he's just uh, the scene that we're talking about folks real quick. And I want you to continue, but uh, the scene we're talking about is uh, whenever they are questioning whether Hal is, is, um, uh, what's well, not dysfunctional, but he's uh, not. Well, I guess it is dysfunctional, but if he's like having, you know, he's having, he's like kind of going haywire a bit and he's cool as a cucumber, of course, because he's a fucking robot, but he's <laughs> talking to him and uh, and they end up going into this pod and they start talking to one another. And uh, Hal actually reads their lips and realizes that they have a plot to shut him down, you know, uh, at least parts of them until the AI portions, basically. So the ship will function. But uh, he can't do any harm. And so Frank goes out for kind of like a routine thing, I'm pretty sure. And uh, and how just like you just see like Frank flying through space through this window that day's looking out and his pod is flipping out, too. And you just, you know, Hal throws him out of this pod. And then Dave also surprisingly cool as a cucumber to an extent. He's not quite as freaked out as I would expect. Uh, hops in a pod and he leaves. And he has to go get his friend, right? And all he's doing is just breathing heavily. <sighs> and it's just that, like, for five minutes. And at first, it's, like, intense. And then it just gets really unsettling. My buddy and I were just like, holy shit, this is, like, wild. And it's so simple. 54 years ago, folks. Continue, Sam. Um, you know, near the end, uh, the sort of white glass room that the old that old Dave is in, um, yeah. while young Dave stands there in an astronaut suit. I think that's you know a striking, really weird image. Um, yeah, there's so many, man. Um, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, yeah. How can you even pick a handful? You know what I mean? Right. Like there's just there's like uh, ten handfuls, and it, it's it's interesting because speaking of that final sequence, which again, two thousand one is not really a movie. I feel like anyone can ruin, but uh, the makeup's actually not bad. I mean, like you can, like especially the old old Dave, like the oldest Dave, the last Dave, um, like that one you can tell is. Not, maybe like not realistic per se, but it still looks great. Like I'm yeah. still surprised that 54 year old makeup looks that fucking good. We were watching it and just kind of blown away. Yeah. The only stuff uh, in the IMAX version I saw that looked kind of dated were the um, like matte paintings, but even those have kind of a magical quality that you can't deny so i can't really say that those look bad sure um yeah nothing... i did notice that uh knowing kubrick so much i did they did stand out to me uh sometimes i didn't notice them as matte paintings per se i just knew that they were not real because the clouds weren't moving and i thought <laughs> to myself i wonder if kubrick argued with someone about this and it was just one of the things he let go you know because <laughs> he's <laughs> such a meticulous mind that i just feel like for all the other shit that he got right in this movie i feel like he had to argue about this and they were just like we got to put our foot down somewhere that's just <laughs> what i like to imagine but good to do oh sure 
Um, but yeah, I mean, nothing when I watch this movie now, you know, nothing makes me cringe and go like, ooh, that looks cheesy. Um, and you know, I think that's really saying something when movies from just five years ago look cheesy to me now. So, um, isn't that freaking crazy? Yeah, it's and I don't know what it is because I mean, movies have such larger budgets now. I, I mean, it's like you want to show these filmmakers 2001 and be like, what's your excuse? Um, because even when you look at something like The Lord of the Rings, like, of course, those special effects, which I think hold up relatively well, but you can still tell they're fake, like some of the CG, but the, the CG stuff's only like for those really huge like mass army sequences or you know what i mean like big things like that otherwise it's like people in orc makeup or what you know and there's just something about those intimate sequences or the smaller kind of uh you know kind of micro uh perspective sequences in lord of the rings where uh that like works so much better than it did in the hobbit i would argue where they're like cg orcs you know what i'm saying <laughs> And it's that uncanny valley thing, which we learned about in Gehring's class. Maybe you weren't in that specific class uh, with me, but he used to talk about it sometimes. And the idea that we can there's always going to be this valley we cannot cross with fake things versus real. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're never going to be able to create perfect realism, but you can create things that can trick the mind enough to overlook. Right. It's like the uh, mm-hmm. suspension of disbelief or whatever. So, you know, we can watch something like uh, Endgame, like Avengers Endgame or whatever, right? And, uh, you know, Thanos is going to look real as fuck, right? Now, give it 10 years, and he's probably not going to look as good as he did, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're going to constantly be getting better at it, but we will never get to reality. And I don't, I, I, I think the big part is, like, all of this shit is, like, models and, like, really meticulous filmmaking, um and makeup and real technology and the fact that the wheel that uh dave is or frank is jogging on whenever he's like shadow boxing and he's kind of like jogging <laughs> it's actually a set that is revolving like interstellar style you know so uh the camera at times is s- static just sitting and it looks like they're going upside down but it's all just in camera tricks and even whenever the uh, the uh, what is it like the server, what the flight attendant or whatever you would call the person takes in some food to the first guy that we meet in space, not the Dave and Frank sequence, but there's a space six months prior, uh, like the sequence that leads to them finding the monolith on the moon. And this guy, which I again, I keep forgetting I have this open. I can just look. Um, but I, I think it is uh, Haywood Floyd, played by William Sylvester. And, uh, you know, Floyd is on this ship and the, the flight attendant, like, you, it just looks like she goes upside down to go in this room, you know. And uh, we all know this, like that cylinder's just turning. The camera's stuck to the actual turning part and it just makes it look like she's turning. Um, but then there's like little things like the pin floating. You know, and she grabs the pen. Do you remember how they did that? Uh, I I don't know the story behind how that was done. Yeah, it's just a, a pane of glass. Oh, that's right. And then yeah. they pick it off the pane of glass, and that's it. It's little s- simple shit. Yeah, that's why like are we complicated? Smoke and mirrors kind of stuff, dude. Yeah, and it's fifty four years later. It looks fucking great. Yeah, like what are huh. we doing? 
<laughs> and think about think about the the amount of technological advancement that we could apply now to these types of tricks. Hmm. Like if we're putting three hundred fifty million dollars into like an Avengers movie, two fifty whatever it is, quarter million dollars doesn't matter. Like I would rather the spectacle be pulled back a bit if we could actually do shit that's this good. Do you get what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like I just, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm only picking on MCU because I like to, but you brought it up, so now I'm like allowed to. Um, but no, it's it's just it's frustrating because I'm watching this and I'm like, dude, I I like the original Star Wars trilogy. I think they're fucking awesome. Hmm. But like this movie looks incredible, and I watch. I have like a new TV, right? So I have like a 4K TV. I'm watching this freaking blu-ray on like a ps5 so it's like up res and i'm like this is gonna be fucking awesome you know what i mean like this is gonna be intense but i was afraid like when i watched hitchcock psycho that all of the map paintings like you said would stand out like a sore thumb where it's like a dead still image with movement around it that was filmed right and just kind of cut in uh i don't see any of it you know what i mean again on a on an imax you might but it, on yeah. my setup i didn't see anything um, including, you know, uh, the sequences in the desert where the apes are, like all the, all that kind of desert stuff with all the different colors and all the different things that Kubrick does with the visuals. I can't find anything. The planets look incredible, like Earth and the moon, like whatever things are being seen in that movie are incredible. You know, what I mean? like, and they look different than something we'd see today, like watching Gravity or something or what. That's like the last movie I think of right now. But you know what I mean? Like something like that. It's going to look different, but it sure. still looks unbelievable. Yeah. And so um, I want to I want to bring up a couple of scenes. Feel free to interrupt me if, if any of these uh, uh, strike you as well. But we we're talking about scenes that stand out when we think about the movie. And I definitely think uh, the uh, the lip reading sequence, because. For Hal just being a red dot, he is like that sequence in particular is such a an ominous thing. I also think about the sequence where uh, Dave Hal won't let Dave in the ship, so he has to manually open up a, a thing, but he doesn't have his helmet because he was rushing out to get his friend, so he has oh, to yeah. shoot himself into the area where uh, he can get back in the ship. You know. Um, and so he like, you know, holds his breath, closes his eyes, puts his, you know, arm over his face and he's just fucking launched, but there's not a sound hmm. like Kubrick just cuts all sound just so because of, you know, space is a vacuum, right? So you wouldn't have that. There's so many interesting, uh, little touches. I, I, I realized watching it this time that I, most of the things I really, really remember are things post the intermission with the exception of the almost ballet like uh, ships right after the ape sequence. Hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> but most of the things that really stand out to me, uh, the, uh, uh, the Daisy, the song, Daisy, Daisy, blah, blah, like uh, Hal singing that as Dave is, you know, uh, turning him off basically like these are crazy and they wouldn't be anything without of course the lead up to it right like all of that stuff you you hit it on the head with the uh the moon where all the astronauts or whatever are out there and they find the monolith right that's a mm. fucking incredible looking sequence like yeah. better i would rather see that a million times than shit today like it looks <laughs> so good and uh i'm not saying it couldn't look better it could 
but I just, it, but nothing looks like that. <laughs> so it's like, like this is amazing. Uh, the lighting stri- strikes me because you, you'll know this. Whenever you watch movies from like the 50s and 60s, especially movies in color, uh, a lot of production teams are still lighting like they did in black and white. So you get this kind of weird lighting vibe uh, whenever there's color because there's, a, of course, like a whole different spectrum of visuals going on and the lighting is different. And one thing Kubrick did for most, if not all of his career, is he liked soft, natural lighting. So, of course, he used a lot of that in Barry Lyndon, whether it was the candles or it was light coming in through windows or at least the replication of that that light. Um, or, uh, you know, in this movie, everything is soft. All these lights are just soft, but it'd be like in the background, it'd be like a blue light. And then everyone is just completely cascaded in red light. And the separation of pe- of people, you see like a depth with color. He is just the greatest. And 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 I I'm, I already told everyone I'm going to I can't pull my sleeve up all the way because my arms I'm I'm too strong. Um <laughs> but uh I have a tattoo that is still growing of all of my Kubrick movies and I have 2001 all the way up here. I can't show you. Um and uh I'm, I'm going to post it on Instagram whenever I post this just so people can I've talked about it before but I want people to know it's real. I'm not shit bullshitting everyone. But it's like <laughs> I fucking love Kubrick. That's what I'm getting at with this movie. And this is like an archetype, like like what an exemplar of his, what I would call genius, right, is better than 2001. I don't even know if it's my favorite Kubrick movie. I'm just saying, but maybe as if you could pick one Kubrick movie to say, look how genius this dude was. This might be the fucking movie. I don't know. I'm yeah. assuming you agree with that. Oh, yeah. I think it is like the definitive Kubrick movie because <clears throat> it works. I think you can appreciate it just um, as a work of such meticulous filmmaking. Like even if you're not really engaged in the story, uh, you know you you can't help but appreciate the craft involved there. Um, and I think that's you know one of his signatures. Obviously, is his attention to detail um he just immerses you in a a really unique uh visual and oral experience um and yet it's also stuffed with meaning um which you can definitely explore but at the same time i think you can appreciate it as just this um kind of incredible yeah spectacle um and I, i was trying to think of if there's any kind of through line with his movies and i think there is to some degree um i think he makes very elevated genre movies um you know 2001 being sci-fi obviously the shining being horror full metal jacket you know war movie um uh you know, you would think that he would be above kind of mainstream cinema, but he's definitely tapped into it. It's just extremely well done mainstream cinema. He never really uh, redid a genre exactly. He did Paths of Glory, which takes place in uh, World War I, Um, but it is about the politics of war, whereas Mm -hmm. Full Metal Jacket is about the horrors 
of war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he, he might ha- be dealing with uh, war, but he's handling it two different ways. Uh, the Killing, for example, film, like old film noir kind of crime heist movie, right? Um, Spartacus, I I hate to be that guy, but I don't really count it as like a Kubrick movie when you love Kubrick because he came onto it after it had already been started. So it was mm. he only had so much control. You know what I mean? It doesn't I don't even really like that movie, um, but that's still like a sword and sandal like uh, what do you call it? Uh, epic. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> like, um, and he did uh, like Lolita, which is a much more like reserved, uh, uh, kind of drama. But which I, he, all of his movies have a certain level of dark humor. But, um, and same thing with Doctor Strangelove. Like, let's just make a wacky dark comedy. You know, yeah. about something. Same thing, like you said, two thousand one sci fi Barry Lyndon period drama. Uh, like, um. Clockwork Orange is like some fucking like what do you even call that? <laughs> it's like it's like futuristic. It's like almost sci fi, but it's nightmare. like yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a it's like a weird thing. Just everything's different, you know. Yes, it's almost kind of erotic thriller almost with eyes wide shut. Um, mm. So it's yeah, he just has this uh, weird thing, and and it's always fascinated me that it, did you know that he um, actually started coming up with the concepts of AI, artificial intelligence that uh, that uh, Steven Spielberg later did. Oh yeah, and uh, and Kubrick was actually working on that, and uh, you'll actually see his production company in the credits and things. He he uh, came up with all the concepts and everything, and then he was obviously that movie came out the year he died, um, and I think so, or maybe a couple years after. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. The point is, uh, he actually hand chose Spielberg for that. Hmm. He was just like, "Hey man, I think this would actually be better for you." <laughs> you know, yeah. he just like <laughs> handed it to him. But imagine that as Kubrick, because I like oh, AI. Wow. But it's yeah. like, man, I cannot even imagine it being him and the shit that he would explore with that kind of content. I also think of his Napoleon film. Did you uh, ever hear about that? There are like whole books about like this movie he never made. But Jack Nicholson was supposed to play Napoleon. Oh, wow. And it's just like, dude, that would be insane. But he has such a specific. He loves wide angles, man. So it's like mm. like to the point of almost distorting. Um, there's that great sequence uh, in in the first spaceship that we're on uh, with that uh, dude that I named. What was his name? Uh, Floyd, uh, Doctor Floyd, and uh, he's sitting there, and it's like all white, but all of the uh, really bizarre looking um, furniture is like bright fucking red or like pink or something. <laughs> like I don't remember the exact color in my memory, but uh, it's just like stands out so hard. And of course, the next film he does is A Clockwork Orange, which has just as bizarre types of sets. It's like, dude, what were you smoking at that time? <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, 2001 is, um, if you can't tell, listeners, uh, it is a movie that I feel like I could talk about for three hours and still have three more hours to talk. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. Um, because there's just so much. And um, we're, we're going to kind of be talking, like coming back to 2001 as we continue forward, I'm sure. Um, but any any kind of last things to talk about with 2001 that we haven't covered yet? We only kind of talked about the music a little bit, the visuals, but more about how it affected us and that experience that we had. I, that's like the through line of this conversation. Anything else you want to add? I have one thing, but I want you to go first. Oh, I think uh, it was just kind of a formative movie for me. It it showed me um, 
you know the the magic that filmmakers are capable of um i mean it it seems like kind of an impossible feat um you know i was the other night i was trying to think of directors now who are comparable to kubrick and you know i think many have tried to emulate him but none even really come close i mean i hate to even mention them in the same breath but you know i i think uh, obviously Shyamalan is kind of trying to be kubrick in some sense with those um you know kind of his unique take on these conventional genre movies um and trying to elevate them a little bit especially with like unbreakable it's kind of an art house superhero movie um i don't want to give Shyamalan any more credit after that though i'm starting <laughs> to feel kind of dirty about it um <laughs> that's hilarious um yeah i think that's all i'd say really yeah yeah i you know i i just want to bring up because the reason i was waiting is because this kind of goes away from 2001 but um i had i had my i had another friend not the one i watched this with i was talking about 2001 and they were like god is there another movie that's even close to this movie in terms of just experiential like it's like art house filmmaking but it's also just like a straight up badass sci-fi movie you know what i mean and it's like like what other movie and i don't know how you feel about this movie so we might argue for a couple minutes here but the only other movie I can think of, not saying there is another one that exists, but still it comes to mind of a movie that was so experiential that every time I've seen it, I had a different experience. And every one of my friends who watch it have a different experience is Malik's The Tree of Life. Mm. Do you like this movie? Oh, I love The Tree of Life. Good. OK, we don't have to fight them. <laughs> no, but um, but hear me out. Uh, I feel like that was almost like the post-millennium like start like 2000 on like almost a 2001 of sorts which was way polarized of course right but when i say that i don't mean that it's actually anything like a kubrick film that's not what i'm drawing the comparison to uh but what i mean is the experiential nature of it there's almost no way to kind of pinpoint exactly what is happening i've had people who are full-blown atheists and not particularly spiritual people saying that I had a friend of mine go, I think I found God. <laughs> not literally, but like, you know, just like like uh, they have these almost spiritual experiences watching that movie. And um, uh, <laughs> like, do you think I'm crazy? I'm not making a comparison, but do you think I'm crazy for bringing that out? Do you, can you think of any other movies, uh, even if you can call bullshit on that one, too? But I mean, can you think of any other movies that even hold a candle in terms of experiential uh well i'll just say in terms of the experience that you have with 2001 uh oh no i think that's a great example i i don't think you're crazy at all i think um to me what's so special about the tree of life is um i mean it does this quite literally but it you know kind of compares the weight of family to the weight of the universe uh by kind of juxtaposing you know the the story of a suburban family with kind of the the birth of the earth um and uh you know i i kind of have a funny story about that movie i remember when it was at keystone art cinema a lot of people were walking out and trying yeah. to get their money back 
And so many people were walking out that they eventually had ushers come in before each screening and warn people that it was an unconventional movie. Um, you know, I'm not sure what kind of uh, mainstream crowd-pleasing popcorn fare they were expecting from Terrence Malick, but... Um, <laughs> If I mean, you had I guess, said that to him, they'd probably be like, what's a Terrence Malick? Right. I mean, I guess it does star Brad Pitt so and Sean Penn. So maybe there were some kind of mainstream expectations there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think The Tree of Life is a similarly big movie with a lot of big ideas and uh, also, you know, uh, technical wizardry and mastery um so i think that's a great example i don't know if i've i mean i don't know i'm trying to think of my own example of something that's like 2001 uh maybe the matrix um i mean not in terms of specific ideas or anything but a movie that just inspires so many different interpretations and has you know evolved so much over the years and still really holds up yeah yeah i um you know i remember with 2001 i'll just say this i remember a while back on i think it was one of the social medias you uh you posted a list of your top something i think it was based on something either christopher nolan or someone like that i don't remember who it was maybe it was like david fincher it was like some known director but they made a certain list of like i don't know if it was movies since you were born that were influential your favorite movies of all time whatever it was um but i know you had 2001 on there and i don't even remember what the list was but i was really happy to see it there um but anyways uh, that's enough about 2001 we're gonna come back in just a minute we're gonna talk about the shining The Shining from 1980, which fits perfectly. I watched this with my buddy as well, and uh, we're doing an 80s marathon right now, and this fit perfectly into it. It was a, it was like my uh, two birds with one stone here. The Shining from 1980, directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson, based on the novel by Stephen King. Uh, the cast, Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers, released June 13th, 1980. The budget of $19 million, and it made $47.3 million. Um, back when horror movies, I guess, just didn't make as much. Hmm. Uh, I don't know uh, exactly why. It's still good. I mean, oh, like yeah. that's good. But, uh, you know, when you think of how big The Shining is now, you think, you know, you're going to say something about like $400 million or something. But 43.7, I'm happy. Uh, this is also on HBO Max. Uh, which is where I watched it because I have a Kubrick box set. And uh, for some reason, the Shining disc is missing. What? Isn't that just the worst? I'm like paranoid about it now. Like, where could it even be? I is think the my case box in is... there or there's no ca It's a box set that has like sleeves built into this like case. Oh. And just the disc is gone. You know what I'm saying? Bullshit. It is bullshit. Anyways, this is a movie about Jack Torrance, who accepts a caretaker job at the Overlook Hotel, where he, along with his wife, Wendy, and their son, Danny, must live isolated from the rest of the world for the winter. But they aren't prepared for the madness that lurks within, uh, especially the fucking twins, dude, uh, which which 
I believe you corresponded with at one point. That was not planned, but I just remembered that. I've yes. corresponded with them too. We're like corresponding with twins buddies. That's oh, a cool weird statement. Um, I gotta get them on here. That was my that was my. Oh, that'd be amazing. They said they would, but then one of them was having surgery, so we had to wait. And now I haven't heard from them. Hmm. Anyways, uh, uh, or the guy you know in the bear suit blowing the dude in the tuxedo. That's a great sequence. I'd totally have them on the show too if they were alive. So, um. <laughs> Sam, uh, I'm sure our audience knows about The Shining. Of course, this is way too famous. 2001, I could see a lot of people maybe not having seen just because it's not necessarily the most talked about movie these days unless you're a cinephile. But The Shining is a kind of just pop culture classic. Uh, so I won't ramble on and on about the plot or anything else. But where does The Shining rank on your hypothetical top horror list? Or is it even on there, man? Oh, it's definitely on there. Um, <laughs> Better be. I mean, it's it's in the top ten. Um, I went through a period of not being able to take that movie quite seriously. I was a little kid in my defense, but I thought that it was kind of hilarious. Yeah. Um. Uh. You know, and it's still kind of funny now, but uh, especially the part that always cracked me up as a kid was when. Uh, Jack Nicholson says something like, uh, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brain. I'm just going to yeah. bash your brains in. I'm going to bash him right the fuck in. And just the way he said, right the fuck in just always made it's me so laugh good. so hard. Um, but since then I've, uh, I think it's terrifying. Um, and, uh it's just one of the most well-crafted horror movies um uh you know it it definitely has a sophistication to it lacking in you know a lot of movies of the genre not that i'm criticizing that i i love you know crude gory horror stuff um you know i think it's like the best horror movies it taps into you know, universal fears. I think, um, uh, you know, the the horror elements really only intensify the terror that's already there, which is, um, uh, you know, this kind of domestic drama going on in the Torrance's life. Um, even from the very beginning, Jack Torrance is really weird. Um, and I, I don't know if you've, noticed that but like right no, from the, like right from the get-go like he's fucking weird um yeah. and you know there's something off about him um and you know obviously you hear that he's been uh abusive and has struggled with uh alcoholism and i think uh you know kubrick does a great job of really making that alone terrifying um i mean even without the the haunted house elements. Um, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. I want to, <laughs> I just wrote down a few notes as you were talking. Cause I want to go back to them here. So you talked about, uh, you talked about fear um, and, and just like, you know, uh, fears that uh, like a bunch of people have and how he, he works with them. And I actually went to a conference where I wrote a paper about Stanley Kubrick's use of fear in The Shining. 
And my argument, my thesis, which could be a billion times stronger now in retrospect, but at the time, as an undergrad, a junior, whatever, I created this paper where I was arguing that Kubrick actually employs multiple different types of fear that we're afraid of, fear of the unknown, um, when, you know, uh, that idea of uh, when uh, people are uh, acting abnormally in a situation where they act like it's normal. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of uh, different aspects. I can't even remember all of the, but I had like nine or something. Like I identified like nine different uh, types of things that people fear, right? And um, it was a whole lot of fun. And one thing, I, I've probably seen this movie more than any other movie, to be honest, because of that. I mean, I watched it at least 50 times when I was writing the initial paper. You know, and I've seen it plenty of times since because this is my favorite horror movie of all time. So uh, I remember going to uh, the conference and talking about it and being afraid everybody's going to rip me apart because they should have. Because uh, I, I really ha like if I went back now, I would actually look into like psychology papers or something to like find out things about fear. I was totally just assuming a lot of things, you know, like I really should have had a lot more research, but I still stand by kind of my thesis that Kubrick in, like uses several different ideas. For example, the great pivotal sequence with Jack Torrance and Shelley Duvall's character, Wendy, where she has the baseball bat and she's backing up and Jack is kind of praying like he's the predator, right? Like not literally the movie, but you know what I mean? He's he's like preying on it, right? And uh, right before he says, like, you know, I just want to bash your fucking brains in or whatever, you know, and that sequence is great because what does Kubrick do? He's cutting the camera back and forth. So he's like, you know, it's a, this disorienting moment, right, where not only does he show Jack Torrance as like uh, essentially preying on you, the viewer, right, because hmm. he's coming after you, but then it cuts back and puts you in Jack's shoes as we are preying upon this poor this poor woman you know what i mean oh, all these just little things uh that allow us to experience things beyond the story itself right and that's what kubrick was always great at i thought was being able to put us in these situations um but uh this of course she's chief among them the the best thing you brought up that i talked a lot about with my friend while we watched it because we talked through a lot of it just because we'd both seen it so many times and i was like telling him about this stuff i'm telling you we didn't talk through the whole thing but you know what i mean uh the the acting i was just like dude this guy is boring as fuck <laughs> like jack torrance like they, their conversation all the exposition at the beginning is so dry yeah. you know what i mean like everyone's acting so normy and it's just it's like it's unsettling because of how just boring it is and i don't mean the movie again this is my favorite horror movie but like i want you to juxtapose the opening sequence where Jack Torrance is in the interview or whatever and accepting the position to the here's Johnny sequence, right? <laughs> you will watch him evolve throughout the film as he becomes more and more and more big and interesting. Same thing with Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall's Wendy is annoying as fuck and awkward. Okay. <laughs> and then you yeah. see her in that sequence, which, you know, the, the, poor woman went through like all kinds of uh uh like nervous breakdowns and stuff during the shoot of this film but um i mean like a lot of people attribute it to her mental instability now 
You know, what I mean? <laughs> like it's like yeah. this film, um, because Kubrick did put her through the ringer, unfortunately. But that's a whole ethical uh, debate we could have sometime. Not that we would be debating each other, but just like talk about. But anyways, sure. uh, Shelley Duvall, dude, go watch her in the opening sequence where the doctor is there to check on Danny after he has first had like a shining episode. Uh, and she tucks him into bed or whatever, says he needs to rest. And she goes and talks to Wendy. And uh, Wendy's just like, yeah, he's he's fine. He's always weird. And she's so awkward. Yeah. And the doctor's like questioning her. Go to that scene and then watch her with the baseball bat when she's backing away from, from Jack. Hmm. You know, after the all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy. Or even her scene with the here's Johnny and he's banging through the door and she's freaking out. That shit is real as fuck. And she could yeah. be nothing but fake at the beginning like just the most the quintessential boring human <laughs> you know what i mean but it's all very strategically done and some people i you know kubrick is one of those guys where he does these really impressive things and i could see some people going you know but that early shit like you said jack torrance is weird and it's like some people could just be like dude the first half of this movie is fucking boring everyone is terrible acting you know and everyone does this and this but like as like the film nerd, you know what I mean? And the film history guy and the guy who loves people doing things intentionally I'm sitting here watching. I'm like, you're a fool. Like, you know, like this is all exactly how it needs to be. Uh, I fucking love it, dude. But the last thing I'm going to say, and I want to pass it back to you here is I'm sure, you know, Stephen King's response to this film. Hmm. Stephen King hated this, wished it had never been made. Of course, he later championed uh, the miniseries that came out in the 90s. I believe it was. Uh, I guess uh, my first question after the intro here is, what do you think about accuracy to source material? Do you have any any feelings about that? Yeah, I've I've always thought um, a movie and its source material should be viewed as two completely different things. Um, I mean, obviously you can't help but go in with preconceived notions if you've read the book that a movie is based on, but I think the movie should really be viewed as just a completely different entity. Um, you know, I, I've heard Stephen King say that he doesn't like The Shining because it's very cold, um, to me, that's uh, one of the reasons why I do like it. Um, you were mentioning the kind of stiff awkwardness of the characters in the beginning. Um, you know, I think what's cool is that they are kind of putting up cold fronts um, to protect themselves. You know, when uh, Wendy is talking to the doctor, uh, she's acting like she has this perfectly normal uh, domestic life and um, she's acting like nothing is wrong um, while Jack in the interview is you know you can tell he's kind of pretending to be a normal guy um, and you know throughout the movie it's like um, father it's like fatherhood and being a husband doesn't fit him very well he's very awkward like there's a scene where she serves him where wendy serves him breakfast in bed and uh it's, just, it's weird it's it, he, he dude he does mouth noises yeah he's just, he's just chomping and i can't <laughs> handle that dude and i'm like watching it i don't remember that and i've seen this movie like 
like I said, like well over 50 times. And I never remember him just chomping on bacon. Like what? <laughs> right. Sucks. And I think they're both, you know, holding in um, these very raw feelings, which come out in an explosive way. Uh, you know, when Jack starts losing it. Um, but uh, what was I saying there? Um, serving him breakfast. Oh, yeah. You can see him start to, you can see his kind of angry side start to come out, even when he's pretending to be a nice, normal guy. Like the, <laughs> the hotel manager shows them their room and he sees kind of a small bed and he taps it and he's like, Ooh, cozy. And you can tell it's like kind of a passive aggressive <laughs> dig and that like he's already kind of losing it. Um, so I don't know. I think that's, you know, one of the things I think works so well and why the movie is terrifying is it's showing these people like just on the edge of like, they're on their last straw. Um, they're hanging on by a, you know, thin thread and, and this house just totally breaks them. Um, so I think that kind of cold front they put on in the beginning makes the, uh, kind of explosive stuff later on that much more effective yeah i agree i agree and and if you watch the making of the shining which is like a 30 minute or 28 minutes or something um i believe you can see it on youtube it's by uh i think it's vivian kubrick his wife ended up making this kind of behind the scenes thing um and it actually captures one of shelly duvall's nervous breakdowns where they had to lay her down and put blankets on her and like let her drink some water and chill out because she's like legit freaking out. And Kubrick is so cold to her. And uh, this has been like a, a widely known thing that Kubrick will put people in situations so that they can actually feel uh, what their characters are feeling. For example, making someone, uh, you know, well, there are so many examples to mention, choose one. But I remember one of Tom Cruise. Uh, in in uh, Eyes Wide Shut, where he's supposed to be walking in from this uh, party that he goes to, and he throws his mask. Uh, or, or he walks in, and the mask is on the bed, or he throws it on, whatever the thing is, but he comes home, and he's supposed to be exhausted. And he made him do it like 107 times, or whatever, right? And Kubrick obviously is infamous for how many takes he would do. But, uh, you know, he basically forced Tom Cruise to be as exhausted and maybe frustrate you know what i'm saying like he puts them in these situations to get an outcome and there is kind of like an ethical argument where it's like some people are like is he just like a sadistic bastard you know what i mean like and then other people might argue like no he's like a fucking artist and it's like the the, the ends justify the means you know what I mean? right. <laughs> like i don't i don't know it's weird because i'm on like both sides of the argument because my bias is that I love Kubrick so much. You know what I mean? The, and and I think his movies are so fucking great that like, I'm like, yeah, I'm so glad these exist. So I'm glad that this happened. And then I see like Shelley Duvall now, like still struggling. And again, I, I, I don't think it's like purely because of Kubrick, but I, I'm pretty sure uh, from at least what I've read that that's like probably part of it. And or at least didn't help the situation. I'm just like, fuck, man, like he needs to calm down. <laughs> you know, like I'm like on both sides of it and it sucks. It's like I'm a wrestling fan and uh, I want to see these guys just kill themselves. Not literally, <laughs> but like just like do moves that are so 
like off the top rope to the outside through a table. You know what I mean? Like just <laughs> or like, you know, just something crazy that would just like kill any normal person. Right. But at the same time, I'm like, no, but I want you to have like a long, illustrious career <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> and you can't have that with this. Therefore, the cognitive dissonance like I'm I'm breaking. Right. And that's how <laughs> I feel when I watch Kubrick movies. Uh, as far as the Stephen King response, though, going back to that. Uh, yeah, I am 100% on your bus, man. Uh, I think a source material should be its own thing. It's the same as like remakes and stuff. I don't care if it's the same. Please change it, actually, because right. we have the original. I don't give a shit. Uh, it's like uh, the game's Final Fantasy VII, which I also have a tattoo of on my arm. Um, nice. But like Final Fantasy VII is my favorite game of all time. Then they did a remake a couple years ago. Do I look like I give a fuck? I still have the original. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Right. Now, the new game was still awesome, but it's like, do I like it more? No. Do I care? Why would I? It's more content that I love. Like, you know what I mean? Right. And, 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 but the other side of that coin, though, is whenever you do know the source material, even though I look at them separately, it is very frustrating when you look at it and you're like, fuck, this studio fucked this up. All they right. had to do was the thing that's on the page. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's really what's frustrating to me is when things and MCU is like just the fucking worst at this is like the they'll like uh, like take shit out, force something together so they can make room for like a romance or something. You know, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just like, fuck, dude, like Winter Soldier, which I actually that's like my favorite MCU movie, probably. But like uh, even that, though. I think pales in comparison to its comic, which is mm. incredible. Now I like both and I'm glad that they're different. Like that's fine. But part of me is just like, fuck dude. Like I understand it's 50 issues. You know what I mean? Like I know you're not going to put that in one movie, but it's like, dude, there's so much walking dead's the same thing. I'm rambling now, but the point is walking dead, the TV show I just can't get into it, but I fucking love the comics. Right. Anyways, Stephen King can go suck a, egg all right um <laughs> because my thing is this like then go make them then go make something right like this is still so great and i wish more people would do this thing you know and and it makes me think of people like uh robert eggers with like the northman or the witch or, or you know name one the lighthouse whichever um and it's like with the northman you can tell that there's a studio involved but it still feels like an Eggers movie. You know oh, what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah. I want, I like want more of that because we have like Denis Villeneuve, right? Doing these movies and you very much get that Villeneuve vibe, right? Mm. Eggers is getting there now, right? I actually really love, I don't know how you, we're going to get back to the shining folks, but, um, uh, Oh God, what is that dude's name? He did, um, uh, the new Batman. Why can't Matt Reeves? Yeah. Um, Matt Reeves is another dude. Like, if you watch his movies, they all have a, a specific look, a specific pacing. You know, like he's he may not be a standout as someone like uh, Nolan was when he broke out because he had such a distinct style. You know what I mean? Or uh, other people that have like really distinct style. But Matt Reeves is great. I, I, I want to see like more of these guys who have like uh, almost like an auteur level of style do big movies. You know what I'm saying? Oh, sure. Well, Did you like the Northman. <laughs> <laughs> I I like the Northman a lot. Um, 
and uh yeah it definitely still feels like an eggers movie um i'm so glad that uh, i mean that's like his seemingly like that's his shot at a like conventional movie but it's still very eggers as you said i'm so glad he did that instead of you know an mcu movie or something like that yeah um you know i i won't rant about this too long but i think some of those just feel the the directing is very anonymous um to me yeah um it's like you know directed by 27 producers um yep. is what it feels like most of the time um but uh i, I don't want to get you hate mail so i won't say any more i mean i already say so much shit <laughs> that it's fine like it's fine um <laughs> <laughs> uh well but yeah back to stephen king's comment um you know it's like of course kubrick would want to add his own stamp to the shining um and uh i mean shit if i were stephen king i'd be fucking thrilled to have a uh, movie made of my book directed by stanley kubrick um you ungrateful son of a bitch i know right um, <laughs> i'm just kidding i love stephen king but like come on um but uh yeah i want to make your point just real quick and then i'm going to finally get back to the shining proper all right you don't you've never you, says no one ever dude i'm a huge peyton reed fan do you even know right. who that director is yeah, well, sadly, yes, he did. Okay, man. But like, um, you know, you can't really say like, yeah, that's a that movie has a real Peyton Reed vibe. <laughs> Never. Right. Never. And if you've even seen stuff like like James Gunn's movies, mm. right? That's the dude that did uh, Guardians, right? Right. Okay. Like when you watch his like movies and you see Guardians, it's like a watered down version of him. I'll right. get the hate oh, mail. Totally. Fine. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> all right so anyways um but the shining like what makes it so great how do, like so we talked about the performances a bit we talked about how like uh awkward jack nicholson and shelly duvall are how <laughs> awkward danny lloyd like the kid is as well like what an awkward kid but he's like he kind of gets away with it because he's cute and then of course you know scatman crothers which uh you know props to the uh place he's staying in florida that just has like a nude woman with an afro like the size of the earth um on the wall i just really love that but uh we talked about that i want to talk about uh, uh the music real quick man because we we're talking about that with 2001 i think 2001 the shining actually have a lot of uh comparisons with their music and the way it is uh it is used um the folks who made the shining i'm gonna remind myself of their names really quickly uh the composers for this why can't I find it? Why? Oh, yeah. Uh, Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind. Uh, but they pulled a lot from uh, the composer uh, Christoph Pendrecki. And uh, if you go listen to it's spelled like Pendrecki. Uh, if you ever go listen to his music, it's like the most fucked up nightmare you've ever heard. Like, it's just classical music. But like from the beginning to the end, it's just crescendos of like dissonant violins like you know what I mean? And like, like weird, scary shit. Um, and it's honestly kind of boring just to listen to by itself. Cause it's literally just that, like, <laughs> like I've never heard a Pendereski score that was actually anything other than just like scary horror music. 
but when you listen to it, it is straight up this. I'm pretty sure they used some of his pieces for this as well. Um, I can't verify that right now. I remember, I feel like I verified it in the past, but I can't tell you where. So I'll just say, take that with a grain of salt. But uh, he's great. And uh, man, there is something about the music in this movie. Um, the loud percussive uh, qualities to it, even with the strings where they're like plucking and pounding on strings and there's like percussion and uh, especially that shit when Wendy's running around the hotel and seeing all that weird shit at the end. You know, the blood in the elevator, the dude blowing the guy in the tuxedo, the, you know, I mean, like, like the skeletons in a room, like all that weird stuff. The guy with the cracked head. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, man, like what what sticks out to you about the music? I'm sure that you remember some of the music or moments like that. Am I wrong? Oh, definitely. I mean, I just rewatched it last night, so it's pretty fresh. But, um, uh, you know, the some of it feels kind of organic like almost like um like a humming in the hotel yeah uh, which i think is cool um or kind of like a ringing in in jack's brain um and uh you know i again i would say it it kind of serves as like a greek chorus while this you know tragedy is playing out um uh, I think Kubrick, <laughs> I was going to say, he has a talent for visual and audio oral experiences. Yeah, no shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, though, he, he has a talent for um, visuals and music that uh, and picking music that really gets under your skin. I think there's something about the that like escalated ringing the like nonstop seemingly always crescendoing ringing that it's like, you feel like it's never going to stop and it's kind of maddening. Um, uh, Like I've always had uh, this fear of like being trapped in a movie theater while 2001 is playing. Um, (laughs) Like on one hand, (laughs) like on one hand, that would be cool. On the other, it's like kind of terrifying. Just the thought of hearing those angelic voices crying and those terrifying images. Um, But uh, yeah, um, I I think the music um, kind of blends into the background in a really cool way. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has. Uh, there's something about his scores and visuals. You're spot on. I mean, even looking back at 2001, the first time you see all those spaceships in the sky, and it's just that classical, like kind of uh, waltz, right? As you as you watch all of these uh, spaceships kind of slowly move across the frame. It was funny because I was like, all right, dude, uh, I got to run to the bathroom real quick. But by the time I get back, it won't even have made it across the screen like the spaceship. (laughs) And like I went and used the bathroom. I came back and he started dying laughing. He's like, no, dude, it's still there. (laughs) You know, and the best part about it, though, I say that to say, like, it just takes its time. That's something I think a lot of new movies could learn from Kubrick is just allowing scenes to breathe and allowing shots to be established, allowing people to be, uh, you know, um, like developed through behaviors rather than, you know, all the things that they do wrong these days. I sound like an old man. I'm going to go sit on my porch after this and yell at kids. <laughs> um, but uh, 
but yeah, but even something like Full Metal Jacket, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, he has uh, these boots are made for walking from Nancy Sinatra or, uh, you know, like all these other uh, songs that people would know. Right. But it's like amazing whenever they appear in the movie, there's like a such an intentional purpose for why these things exist. Right. And there's there's like a double meaning for everything. That movie also I almost chose that for this because I think that one uh, kind of blows my mind as well for different reasons. But back to The Shining, though. Uh, yeah, the, the music in this is uh, a second to none, I think. Uh, maybe to 2001. I don't know. They're both amazing. I kind of count them because they're the same guy. Uh, directing but uh yeah and then the visuals like i said earlier with the the way that the camera shots are composed the way that it moves i mean we very very quickly get the sense that steady cams exist in our world now um and we're gonna follow a kid around on a uh on a big wheel you know <laughs> uh which is also really ominous man those those tires on the floor and the changing of carpet to floor uh, has a really unique impact. What are some of the scariest moments, though, when you think of The Shining? Granted, you just rewatched it, uh, but like you said, you find this movie terrifying. When you think of the scary moments, what comes to mind? Um, uh, the one that instantly pops in my mind, and this is another kind of like basic bitch answer, but um, the blood flooding out of the uh, elevator. Yeah. Um, to me, I think of the, the images that I imagine being the scariest on a big screen. Um, and that would definitely be the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. I, I watched this on our, uh, we have a projector now and I mean, the screen isn't, you know, huge, but it's, it's relatively big. And, uh, uh, that image was pretty scary. Um, you know, obviously the twin sisters in the hallway, um, the uh, image of the woman, her reflection in the mirror as she switches from yeah. being this, you know, kind of naked beauty to this um, decaying old woman. I mean, her skin is literally, you know, peeling off. Um, yeah. uh trying to think of other images that stand out um i guess Dude, the one oh i just, was just gonna say that this the catman's uh or uh, scatman crothers uh literally laying on that bed as the camera pulls out to reveal these hilarious pictures <laughs> oh yeah that was it's great. not that's not scary but i just want to bring i just need that to be in this show because i think like we just like laughed so much because they're just these like nude women that he has like facing each other on the opposite walls um and they're these like uh just these great uh <laughs> images um but uh how, how did you react to something like the red rum sequence which scared the shit out of me the first time i saw it um, that was really scary for me this time around too. Um, uh, it, well, I don't know, I guess, cause I'm closer to the age of being a, a parent. Um, but I, this was the first time that I put myself in, in Wendy's shoes and thought, you know, if that, 
if my kid drew that on a door and was saying it over and over again, that would scare the fuck out of me. Yeah. Holding a butcher knife. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's another universal fear that the movie taps into the idea of your kid, you know, not being quote unquote, you know, normal or having some kind of, uh, you know, health problem. Um, uh, yeah. Or just being safe altogether as a right. separate universal fear because he yeah. keeps getting injured and no one knows how to stop him from getting injured. Um, right. You know, those things. Yeah, you're spot on there. Yeah, the red rum thing is particularly when I first saw it, it was like the only the first time I saw it. Oh, man, this would have been uh, probably the er like early to mid 2000s. I actually saw it that late uh, from beginning to end, that is. And uh, the only part that actually scared, like freaked me out is that red rum sequence, uh, because it's the way that Danny says it. Like, because he starts and he's just like talking almost in like Tony voice, right? Where he's like, red rum, red rum. It's like really little. But like after he writes it, he's just standing over Shelly Duvall with like a knife. And he's just like, red rum, red rum. And it's it's like not a realistic voice almost. Like it's like freaky, but also juxtaposed with that or whatever. It's Shelly Duvall's performance where she actually gets up and she's just confused. Like, mm. it's not that she's particularly scared until she sees the red rum in the mirror and it says murder, and you get that really percussive uh, score behind it. But she's just confused. And you know what I mean? And scared for her boy rather than generally scared. And that whole sequence I thought was so fucking good, dude. And another sequence is whenever uh, Jack Nichols or uh, Jack Torrance is busting through the doors first he starts in the hallway to get into his room in the first place and he's just uh the way the camera moves the impact of the camera where it's on the door and then he pulls the axe back and it moves the camera and then it goes really fast into the door and you actually get this full-on like visceral visceral kind of like uh momentous sequence of mm. like the re repetition of the axe hits on the door boom 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 right uh, and again, just Shelley Duvall's performance by the end is one of my favorite horror movie performances, not in the beginning, but like, you know, <laughs> but like by the all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy sequence to the end. I think she's great. Um, and the same thing goes for, uh, for Jack Nicholson, which gets so much bigger and unhinged. And he actually does stuff that's like darkly comic. Hmm. So like, uh, you know, the, uh, little pig. Little pig, <laughs> you know, like all those little moments. The um, I'm just gonna bash in the fucking, <laughs> and he does this little laugh after that, which is like the part that gets me cracked up. Um, he's just so good in this man, and 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 the I mean, this is also a movie not unlike 2001, but this one actually got a documentary spinoff of sorts where. Uh, you know, Room 237, which I think most of these people's theories are bullshit, but it's really interesting for me to listen to, um, where you have all of these people. The whole documentary, if you haven't seen it, folks, is uh, Room 237 is a bunch of people's theories on what The Shining is actually about. And it's like a bunch of people. Did you ever see Room 237? Yeah, I a long time ago, but I remember someone said that it had... Uh 
like a Native American thread. Um, well, it's on an Indian burial ground, which is the oh, uh, the hotel sure. was built on. And then there's all this Native American uh, like uh, uh, like blankets and, and pottery and things. Yeah. So this person is like making it about like uh, uh, like America trying to like or like the colonists. You're right. Like coming over and like basically like murdering all the Native Americans. And that's what The Shining's about or something. It's just like the fuck are we talking about? Or like the moon landing <laughs> thing was one. Um, right. where they talk about the shining as proof of like the moon landing being faked and you know just like all of these like crazy conspiracy theories about this movie that's just like scary as fuck you know what i mean um but you, so you find the shining like legit like freaky oh yeah i think uh actually 2001 and the shining i would consider two of the most disturbing movies i've ever seen um like right in the top five just really unsettling they just always get under my skin yeah how much of that do you attribute to just overall atmosphere developed by like kubrick's vision oh it's totally atmosphere um uh i mean you know like i said um uh with the shining and some of the music the like ringing in jack's brain i mean it's like you feel like you yourself are kind of going crazy as you're watching it and this music is just constantly escalating and you feel like it's never going to end um yeah i i think they're both kind of like visual and oral attacks um i mean like i said i had nightmares that i would be forced into watching 2001 on a loop um (laughs) just like trapped in an IMAX theater, watching it on the biggest screen with the most intense sound system possible. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I think they're just both really unsettling kind of visceral experiences that, that uh, um, yeah, just really uh, disturbed me. Yeah. So um with the shining as i said uh you know this is not a a an adaptation that the original author of the source material stephen king was a fan of talked about a little bit about the i love that you brought up the acting thing man about how like he was just so weird at the beginning and it's just like everyone's fucking weird and dry and boring <laughs> and you're expecting this like horror movie and everybody's just like acting so boringly you know what i mean which is like fucks with your expectations right and it almost makes it scarier because you're like the fuck is going on you know <laughs> like, yeah, like, like the, why are they acting this way like sorry to interrupt but um no go ahead like the hotel manager when he's telling the story of the former caretaker who killed his family um he like kind of laughs about it and and jack nicholson laughs about it too and it's just really unnatural behavior and and definitely and an inappropriate response to such a story and um yeah they're like very robotic in the beginning um and um i think i actually have a quote pulled up here that relates to how weird everyone acts um oh kubrick said he was talking about what uh drew him to the material and he said there's something inherently wrong with the human personality. 
Um, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he's referring to the fact that these characters are kind of putting up a front in the beginning. You know, they're, they're not honest. They're bottled up. I mentioned Jack being kind of passive aggressive at one point when he's talking to the hotel manager and then you see them just unload in the end and it, it shows that, you know, we're humans are definitely weird. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, man, I, I can't I man, I just started. I remember the first time I saw it, I mentioned that experience before. But I just remember thinking that the performances were just so like at that time, I would have just said bad. And you mentioned like when you saw it as a kid or when you were younger, you used to just like laugh at it and think it was like funny. Yeah. And so did I, because I just thought well, I just didn't understand why it was this way. Of course, by the end, you love it because it's so wild. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, but uh. Yeah, the acting is is great, uh, and and just uh, his use of fear and everything in this movie is great. The camera work is just fucking incredible. Um, the he's constantly leading or following Jack Nicholson almost like with the steady cam. You know, there's a lot of following in general. You know, the camera almost has this disembodied uh, like observer vibe to it, right? Where mm. you're constantly kind of like following these characters. Um, and, and that's really bizarre. There's also the great sequence, which we haven't talked about yet. A uh, cinematographer is John Alcott, by the way, but, uh, we, uh, we also get that great, uh, moment where he's talking, he calls him Jeevesy and, uh, he's, he's drinking the, uh, the, the, uh, imaginary booze basically that he has. And man, whenever he's sitting in front of him, the light on his face, that natural kind of like diffused light. And there's that point where he kind of makes the joke and he looks real serious. And then he busts out with that big grin and starts laughing. And it's like, is there anything scarier than that fucking sequence, which seems not scary at all? You know, other than the fact that, like, you know, that the Torrance family are the only people there. And now there are more people here. Like, yeah, I get that that's kind of on the surface kind of weird. But man, the way that Jack immediately transforms or even the first time that, uh, which I don't know why Wendy comes in there. Maybe she just missed him, but she just walks in and goes, checks on him and goes, Hey, I was watching this thing on TV and she just straight up does just interrupt him writing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he goes way overboard though, of course. And he's just like, why don't you just get the fuck out of here? What, you know, and he's just like really mean to her. And uh, I just think uh, the way all of that's set up, the camera work, everything is just kind of this like perfect thing. Um, any thoughts on the shining that we haven't covered so far that you want to get out before we start to close this up? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you chose this motherfucker. Why do you love it? (laughs) (laughs) I do love it. Uh, okay. I'll talk about the, the scene with the former caretaker. Um, I think, you know, when they're in that bathroom, which is, uh, uh, incredible, it's, oh my God, it's like disturbingly bright and white. It almost kind of looks like the old Dave's bedroom at the end of 2001. Um, and it has just these impossibly red, uh, bathroom stalls and urinal partitions. But, uh, when, Jack realizes that he's talking to Delbert Grady, the former caretaker who massacred his own family. Um, 
it's kind of darkly funny oh yeah um because jack seems almost excited uh when he realizes who he's really talking to yeah um and uh you know delbert grady talks about correcting his ba- his his uh family i i corrected yeah. her um you know that's really disturbing mm-hmm. um and it is weird that it it works that it's terrifying but it also works the movie overall um yeah. is actually pretty funny uh like i found myself uh quoting that scene where he's uh jack's talking to wendy and he's like uh now, whether I'm typing or not typing or whatever the fuck you think I'm doing in here. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's like fun to, to act that out because it's so over the top and it's so yeah. disturbing that it elicits this kind of nervous laughter. Um, anyway, I'm rambling. Yep. I only no, 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 no. That's you. you just, me. I know. I know. No, you, uh, you highlighted something really important though, is I, I mentioned it earlier is, uh, Kubrick's, you know, uh, constant direction toward dark humor like every movie that he does even something as disturbing as full metal jacket when they're standing up the dead vietnamese and taking pictures with them Mm. um and the way that they play those scenes out like yes it's disturbing but it almost inspires laughter not because it's actually funny um but because they're having such a good time about it and the juxtaposition of the horror of what you're doing but also just these guys goofing off like they're from like the animal house house frat house or something you know know, like just being goofy or whatever um yeah he's just um oh and and then just all of dr strange love you know like these incompetent leaders trying to figure out how to uh not nuke russia you know what i mean (laughs) like like you know like the whole movie is about like nuclear uh attacks and stuff but yeah kubrick is uh, such an interesting guy um happy birthday to him i guess uh, my final question for you is outside of The Shining in 2001, anything you want to say about uh, any of his other movies that you like a lot? Um, I actually really love his last movie, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, you know, we talked earlier about how he tackled these kind of conventional genres. Um, I feel like Eyes Wide Shut is part of a genre that was kind of new in that era era which was the you know the erotic thriller yeah um with like basic instinct and jade and um that kind of stuff i mean it's uh kind of tawdry uh material but i think kubrick really elevates it into something artful um and i don't know i think that kind of summarizes what he did in general uh you can definitely apply it to the shining you know that's um you know pretty lurid uh horror material but you know he he turns it into kind of an elegant work of art um so uh yeah happy birthday um he was uh you know a genius a master filmmaker kind of an asshole um (laughs) yeah um, yeah, but uh, yeah, definitely yeah, a person I, um, worth celebrating. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, the Shining two thousand one, of course, are incredible. Uh, if you have the stomach for it, go check out the Clockwork Orange. Some people 
get really worked up about that movie. I adore that film. Uh, Me too. Full Metal Jacket, of course, just just one of the all-time great, I'm going to say anti-war films, but just war films in general. Um, Dr. Strangelove, again, another great dark comedy. Paths of Glory, another great war film, but more on the humanity side, less about the horrors of war and more about uh, you know the injustices of the politics of war. Um, Barry Lyndon is just like a complete um, exercise in tension and production. I mean, the like the fact that he is able to kind of recreate paintings, you know, like Renaissance paintings. Um, it's it's I don't know it's 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 wild. Uh, he he just did so many great things. I encourage you all to definitely go check out some of his movies. Uh, friend of the show, and you may remember uh, him. Sam, uh, Jake Bonaleri, he eyes wide shuts his favorite Kubrick film, which I, of course, disagree with, though. I do love. I mean, I like all of his movies for the most part. Um, Minus Spartacus. I just can't get into Spartacus. It's too fucking long. (laughs) And Anthony Mann was originally supposed to direct it. Uh, And this movie's like uh, 197 minutes. So it's over three hours long. Okay, And uh, uh, what's his fucking name? Uh, Kirk Douglas. He uh, he was in Paths of Glory with Kubrick. They fire Anthony Mann like four days into production or something. And they're like, we need a new filmmaker. Studio does. And Kirk Douglas, who was like obviously a huge megastar, is just like, hey, I just worked with this dude. Like, you should put him. He, I think he'd be good for this. And uh, so Kubrick comes in. It could not look more different than any other Kubrick movie. Have you seen Spartacus? Yeah, it's been a long, long time, though. I bet it's not any better than it was the first time you saw it. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean to talk shit. It's actually not like the worst or anything. It's just really disappointing as a Kubrick film. And I don't it's like impressive as an epic because like they made this thing. Right. Uh, but it's just not. I just don't think it holds up that that's really the only movie uh, that Kubrick made next to maybe Killer's Kiss, which just pales in comparison is the only problem. It's his first film. Um, but man, just uh, from the killing all the way to eyes wide shut just masterpieces i think just what a guy man but anyways sam thank you for taking this journey through time and space with me (laughs) uh as we have uh, talked about the shining in 2001 thanks buddy oh thank you it's been a pleasure That was Sam and I talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Shining. And I got to tell you, I love Kubrick so much. I love his uh, visual style. I love the extent to which he will take a film in order to accomplish his vision. I love the music that he accompanies to it. I love the movement of the camera uh, or, or the lack thereof. I love his lighting. I love the way he makes people perform because I understand sometimes it's not necessarily very entertaining, uh, but it is something that really stands out and feels perfect to me in those moments. And so, uh, yeah, I'm a huge Kubrick fan, if you couldn't tell already. Uh, And I'm really excited to talk about more. Uh, That said, I got to go see Nope sometime soon uh, in theaters. I got to see Thor Love and Thunder. I still haven't seen these movies because, again, uh, we've just been too busy lately and just had really very, very little downtime at any kind of reasonable time, at least to be able to go do these things. Uh, But there are some movies I want to check out. And as I've already said before, I have several 2022 movies just kind of sitting on the proverbial shelf waiting to be watched. So 
I'm going to be covering some of these things in the coming weeks and uh, doing a lot of fun stuff like that. So please come listen again. Again, I, I have to apologize. Uh, I just said again twice, even though it was two different sentences. But anyways, um, again, uh, I, <laughs> uh, I have to apologize for uh, not posting last week, but I really appreciate you guys sticking by and listening to this. So thank you very much. And uh, I am really looking forward to what we have in store. I have so many guests on their way to coming in. So thank you for listening. I love you guys. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy.